Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Welcome back to Back From The Borderline, emotional alchemy in your pocket. Today's guest I am really excited about. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Dr. Jay Watts is a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, senior lecturer, and dedicated mental health activist working in London. Dr. Watts has held many senior clinical and managerial roles in academia and the National Health Service in the UK. She's also taught clinical skills on clinical psychology, counseling psychology, and psychoanalytic training courses. Activism is also a core part of Jay's personal and professional identity. She believes in the importance in highlighting both the helpful and potentially harmful natures of psychology and psychotherapy. Jay is consistently using her own social capital, clinical expertise, and research skills to assist grassroots organizations and survivor groups. Jay spends half of her working week doing pro bono work, which includes running a clinic for those on long-term disability benefits. She's also involved in an emerging collective of psychiatric survivors, radical professionals, and other activists who are fighting for a better vision for mental health care. Jay is vocal about the harm of personality disorders as diagnostic labels, most notably that of BPD or EUPD as it's called in the UK and EU. And EUPD, if you're not familiar with that term, stands for Emotionally Unstable Personality Disorder. That's how it's referred to in the UK and the EU. Jay believes that the label BPD can shut down a humane response to an individual's justified suffering and is outspoken about the lack of construct validity of the BPD diagnosis itself. In this episode that you're about to hear, Jay and I got to sit down and discuss her own lived experience. Having spent time in psychiatric inpatient units in the UK in the 90s, and how this experience sparked her career in psychology and mental health activism. We explore how just as recently as this year, BPD and EUPD were nearly both removed from the ICD-10 entirely as labels. Jay is also particularly vocal in the activism communities that use the hashtags trauma not PD and autism not PD and PD standing for personality disorder. Recent findings indicate that many autistic or traumatized people are misdiagnosed with BPD and EUPD. We also dive into the potentially dark and harmful aspects of dialectical behavior therapy, one of the most common therapeutic modalities aimed at those diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. This is an incredible discussion, and something that I loved about it most was the dialectical nature of our conversation, the shades of gray, the complexity, the nuance. 
it can be incredibly tempting to want to pick a firm side or take a very extreme view about some of these topics, but the entire benefit of our conversation is zooming out, opening our eyes, and potentially having the courage to challenge some of our firmly held beliefs about some of these concepts so that we can come back from these extreme and polarized opposite views and find a more human center in all of these discussions. And I believe that the work that Jay is doing and other activists like her are incredibly important and are exactly what going to bring the industry of mental health to an entirely new frontier. There are various points in this conversation where Jay was even able to open my eyes to things I hadn't realized about myself. So as with all of my episodes, if you're new here and you haven't been listening to the podcast for long, this podcast is documenting my own journey and my own changing views and beliefs about these common things we struggle with nagging feelings of emptiness, suicidal ideation, deep emptiness, feelings of abandonment, being called crazy, dissociating, feeling different and broken. And we talk about all of these things in this episode. And so I encourage you to listen with an open mind and an open heart. And it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Jay Watts and her work. And I just want to let you know that all of the resources that we discuss in this episode will be linked in the show notes. Jay even kindly provided me with a list of additional articles and resources that you can use and check out if you'd like to at the end of this episode, if you choose that you want to dive deeper into some of these concepts. So don't forget to check that out. So without further ado, let's dive straight into my conversation with the absolutely incredible Dr. Jay Watts. Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm Jay, Dr. Jay Watts. Uh, My pronouns are she and they. Um, And um, I'm an obsessive activist in this area, I guess you should say. Um, I come to this both as a consultant clinical psychologist and a psychotherapist now, um who gets to spend my days sitting with people in incredible distress very very often with multiple complex trauma um who've been labeled as borderline personality disorder we'll talk about that later um very very often neurodivergent multiple disadvantaged multiple disenfranchised um and I also come from from a background. I was um, uh, in the 1990s. I was um, uh, one of the first lived experience practitioners. So kind of back in the day when they quite literally thought we couldn't work. Um, uh, then uh, it was uh, one of the OG programs or the OG program that started with, with lived experience workers. And so really kind of since then, so from the 90s, I've been trying to um, make services better and try to put our voices as survivors first and foremost. That's in a way, all I really, really want is to get kindness and decency and proper intensive care there. Uh, and so from that from that perspective, as a survivor and as a professional, I've been involved in uh, in, in activism in this area for, for uh, a very, very long time. I 
read that you actually, I mean, when you say lived experience, obviously we know what that means, but I'd love to hear about, um, I think I read on Twitter that you said that you'd spent time in a psychiatric in inpatient care, right? Do you, are you comfortable sharing a little bit about what was your experience like in inpatient care? And did that, obviously that experience mm-hmm. shook something inside of you that inspired your activism? Is that what did it? I'd love to hear about that. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, I was in, I, I had quite a few admissions over the years um nearly always under section is how we put it in the UK so that's when when it's kind of against against your will um and I my first time I was in hospital um I was absolutely broken and shattered in all the ways um and uh, making multiple super dangerous like attempts in my life um, really kind of I, I'd had a lot of previous sexual violence um, kind of as a child and as a teenager and I was doing the thing that 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 we can do whereby I was then escaping from my family but putting myself in situations that were actually very very dangerous too and so I was an absolute like alley cat I wouldn't like you know I was kind of like don't with me um in a really hard way um, I can relate I can yeah. relate very much yeah I have a, yeah uh, and so and so I was like I think I was kind of like both desperate for help and knew that it was something wrong but I couldn't articulate it and I hadn't had enough like or, or really any kind of trusting experience of authority figures to even try to articulate what was wrong not that, not that I was quite with it enough to know in terms of trauma and so I was ambivalent and chaotic and confusing and furious and um you know and and running away from services and then putting myself in situations where I'd be back and then you know being visibly mad and I was just like completely you know apeshit crazy like trying to protect myself and then trying to get something different at the same time um and and psychiatric admissions basically completely and totally and utterly failed to help they were very obvious literally for I remember the first I mean the the not to be too traumatizing for your your listeners literally the first night I was an inpatient um there was this guy on the ward who was like pacing all night and he was sort of saying you know I'm gonna have a heart attack I'm gonna have a heart attack I'm gonna have a heart attack and in the morning we found out he'd had a heart attack and he'd been like all the nurses all night had completely ignored him oh my god and so it was kind of like right from that beginning it was like okay not only am I going here against my will not only am I having my kind of body like restrained by big men when that was the last thing I needed frankly then I can see people around me being made well with him he died but you know like being more and more unsafe and and that I just kept on you know I just kind of like it was just that was they were even worse it's unusual for me to be speechless but you can hear my kind of words kind of fail because there is something about being so incredibly vulnerable and in that situation and then the absolute like despair 
and fury that actually, you know, for others, less for myself, because I didn't care enough about myself at that stage. Um, the the caring place was was the absolute opposite that, you know. And so I had quite a few admissions and they were pretty university um, horrendous. I'm not, as a patient, I'm not likable. <laughs> you know, like, Thank God you made me laugh because I was getting very teary for you. <laughs> That's funny. You know, some people like, they can like cry and write the right yeah. and they're just yeah. like, you know, wonder how professionals like them. And like, I was kind of like, just crazy. Fuck you vibes. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, um, yeah it, it, it you know it nothing nothing there and and I think very much because of my privilege kind of like by the time I was kind of in my like mid-20s where it was so obviously like do or die in all the ways mm-hmm. and I'd you know I'd had like a uh you know some very close runs in terms of intensive care and shit like after attempts um then it was like okay, I think my privilege came in at some level and it was like, do something about it, Jay. Yes. And then I I was like, okay, I'm going to change it. I'm going to change the psychiatric system, you know. And I still, I mean, you know, that was kind of like mid-20s. I'm I'm almost 50 now. And, and that, I think sometimes as survivors, we have that, there's an extra fuel with that, where that's still, I want to change. I'm a little bit more realistic now. Yeah. Uh, but I just still, I, 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 I just want people when I'm teaching, like I have this with the trainees, I, I'm just, I just want people to be decent. And if they see someone with a fuck off shield, or if they see someone who is, you know, kind of like trying to end it, but also trying not to end it, or, you know, like, uh, you know, attacking people who are trying to to help quote unquote, then I just want a different set of responses because, yes. you know, we know, like, to have consistency and empathy and hope continuously for a long time around us, that starts to go in and that starts to change us. And I hadn't had that in my early life. I hadn't had that in my teenage years and when I was being so disruptive. But that was, you know, I always say to myself and sometimes to other people, like when I got myself to good people, that was the beginning where it was the beginning of you know, the, the, the seed of being able to see myself as a good person. Who knew that actually just being in a safe holding environment, you know? right? That, that would help, right? Oh, exactly. Exactly. it's not that complicated, is it? It's like people need their basic needs met and they also need to understand that people are there to help them. You know, I had, a, it's, I was tearing up over here as you were explaining the, uh, your experience in the psychiatric hospital. And, and my listeners are not really trigger warning type listeners. They want, they're just as spicy about all this, you know, they want to hear the real truth. And I, I'm really also of the belief that I think we need to talk openly about these things. And I can't even imagine what that must have been like for you already feeling traumatized. And it's like, you're an individual person, you've experienced sexual assault and they're going to restrain your body and especially have men restraining your body. It's like, they don't care. And then the moment that you hear a man saying he knows something's wrong with his body and they're laughing and ignoring and calling him crazy. I mean, if I were in that situation, I would feel like, get me the fuck out of here. Like, am I going to die here? How the hell can healing happen in those Mm -hmm. environments? Yeah, absolutely. 
Did you watch? I'd love to. I have some questions for you, but it made me think of that. There was a Channel 4 documentary, and for my listeners that are in the US, I have quite a few UK listeners too, but um, Channel 4 is a, a channel in the United Kingdom, and they did this. Was it Channel 4 that did the expose on the psychiatric hospital where the, a person went in undercover? And I saw you kind of reacting a bit to that. Do you know what, what the worst yeah. thing is with that? Or that there were like, so there was a dispatches program, there was a horizon program, and 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 thank you so much for for naming them. They were so 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 important. But obviously, you know what happens with filming. It was a while ago, yeah. And because I'm lucky enough to be kind of like sort of you know around in UK activism, I'm not. I don't think I'm. Well, I'm not breaking any confidentialities because people have said to be open about it that I'm getting emails from some of the people in those programs. Some of whom are still in you know hospitals in the area. And certainly kind of in Essex, which is, I think, the one you watched. So, mm-hmm. kind of, yep. you know, the situation is exactly the same. And You've that, got to be kidding me. Exactly, exactly. And it's absolutely, there's an amazing woman called um, uh, Melanie Leahy, who is the mother of um, one of the people that you would have heard talk about. Um, um, uh, another young man called, called Matthew, who 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 died as a result of, of, of what was going on there. And, you know, um, the situation is still, you know, they're trying to at the moment kind of get staff, they're trying to get statutory responsibilities for the staff to go and say what happened. But the problem is it is still happening. And, you know, it's not like one or two voices that are saying it, put it this way. There is um, there is very clear proof of that. Um, and so it's this weird thing for me. It's one of these really weird ironies of now whereby, in you know, as you know, kind of like in the States too, like last five years, last 10 years, people are talking about mental health more and more. Yeah. And when they're talking about mental health, it's kind of often sort of neat, tidy, you know, no disrespect to anyone, but mild to moderate mental health problems rather than, do you know what I mean? Rather, I'm than- laughing because I literally, Jay, on my podcast, I always say, and I have one of your tweets here saying like, really, I really, really worry about clickbait culture making mental health discourse and thus practice even worse. And I, I literally say on my podcast, I'm tired of like BPD one, two, three carousels, right? It's like, and just mm-hmm. these carousels, are you autistic? Or do you have ADHD? Do you have this? And I'm going like, is that helping? Because you can't, you can't explore concepts that have so much nuance and so much, so many shades of gray in these really short, simple. That's why I went away from carousels on Instagram. I just start posting memes now and deriving people to my podcast because I, I did that for a while. And I'm like, am I harming or helping? Exactly. Exactly. And kind of, I mean, like getting people to who who are not survivors to realize the extent of the pain is so incredibly difficult and that all levels of mental pain aren't the same. That is such a thing that, that hasn't been translated. And sometimes when you get these short, kind of quite, you know, attractive looking kind of like, you know, infographs or whatever they are, yeah. it's like, it's like kind of, I don't know, being like a 12 year old and seeing a kind of, you know, does she fancy you? Does he fancy you kind of thing? Rather than, <laughs> Want to go out with me? Yes, no, exactly, maybe. Exactly. Rather than like, you know, kind of like, can I, can I try not to actually like tear my inside out? You know? <laughs> That's what I'm saying, right? Is like, 
when I talk to people about BPD, I talk about, I call it the big empty TM, right? Like no carousel can describe the dead feeling of emptiness inside and wanting to die, you know, like literally thinking like I had times and my listeners have heard this a million times, but you know, where the only reason I didn't kill myself is because I couldn't, I couldn't even do it because I was scared that my dog would be like walking around my body afterwards. And I couldn't imagine leaving my dog, but I had so little care for myself that mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't care about what happened to me. I just didn't want my family to have to deal with it and my pet and I'm convinced after speaking to so many people with this label or who think they should, they have traits that align with, with BPD, this death urge that they feel. And now the last two years I've gotten so nerdy about, I love psychoanalysis and I just love like reading depth. I have so much. I love depth psychology and I read so much. And I was reading about Winnicott, you know, and the object relation stuff and how he talks about how important it is for children to have a sense of holding, you know, when they grow up. And to me, hearing Winnicott talk about, it's all very academic, but what I came away with was just like, that's, that's what I felt is like, I had all my basic needs met. I have my privilege, but I never felt that sense of holding. And so without that holding, I always felt like there's this big gap in my heart that I was just trying to fill it with people, places, and things. And how can that be a personality disorder when it's actually, it's like you mentioned here, you're talking about, and I'd love to find this tweet because it correlates perfectly with this. It's about, you mentioned environment. You said trauma often gets handed down transgenerationally until there is help. Kids born into this environment will show it from early on. That doesn't mean there's an underlying personality issue, but an environmental one. I'd love to hear you, you like elaborate on that if possible. I mean, first, just money, it's just so, I think it's such a gift how you talk about emptiness. And I think just in terms of your podcast, one of the most powerful things that that you're giving community is, you know, this really numinous kind of relationship to these things that are so... literary style big they you know they're not they're not in an 800 word article they're you know they're what it is to be alive what it is to feel that there's another person potentially even in the universe what it is to not splinter into you know into outer space because yourself it that's such a the the work that you're doing in 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 the production of your own language but also the co-production with with survivors you're speaking to is is so so powerful with that and I think in its own way so important as a kind of antidote to the absolute overwhelming moon of that of that kind of like emptiness so so I I really appreciate and and thank Thank you you. for that so much I really appreciate that you have to like you can't describe it unless you're like using your body right like even me explaining it because I'm reading A. Um, a. H. Almas. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a really cool spiritual writer, but he mm-hmm. also is a big Winnicott person, but he takes it pretty spiritual. But he talks about how that feeling of holding, he calls it living daylight. And that mm-hmm. like, if you don't have holding as an adult, you grow up with someone who just genuinely doesn't believe the world is a safe place. And if you have that, you're living from this like 
uh, sense of being. There's no hole. You're full of living daylight. But for those of us who didn't have that, it, it's no wonder why we feel so empty. Then you go to someone, a psychiatrist, who, and you say, I want to kill myself. Or more often, it's like a therapist with a, a, bachelor, a master's degree, right? And they're out there helping people. And you get I've had I've I've interviewed people who've gone to their therapist wanting to talk about this death urge and mm-hmm. the therapist immediately like calls in, you know what I mean, and reports them and they're getting mm-hmm. sectioned. And I'm going, Jay, what do you think about this? And then I promise I'll stop ranting. I always try my best to give you guys as much mm-hmm. um airtime. But but I think a lot of times when I've talked about my feeling of wanting to die and when I'm in those low moments it triggers people because I think sometimes it touches their death urge. 100%. 100%. 100%. I remember my, um, I was lucky enough to go and see this. I'm really psychoanalytic. So we're, we're, we're talk about that in a second, but yes. um, I, I've always loved psychoanalysis the most because I think it it's the best of perhaps a not great. I agree. Of actually, exactly. Of actually really going for depth. I agree. And, and, and really what you know, I think sometimes with survivors, we live at the edges of what it is to be a human. And there's, you know, there's that that's more the poetic space and the space of the interpersonal than 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 the kind of atomized ideas that, that the clinical training certainly gives. But um yes, yeah, so I, I I you know psychoanalyst myself, but I remember my my psychoanalyst who is amazing, but I remember there was this moment where I was just talking about the extent of the death drive and I always, with my patients, I always use the term death drive because it's a motherfucking steam train coming and it's not going anywhere. And it's the most powerful drive. And when that completely takes, you know, this is the point where there's some options, but when that completely takes over, you know, it's, it's, it's more powerful than food and drink and water and, you know, anything. Um, but I remember there was a moment with my analyst and I try and remember this when I'm practicing whereby I was talking about this and you can feel or as patients or we can feel as patients, even someone like as trained and she'd been on the couch for years and several decades herself. And, but you can, you can hear that there's just a slight anxiety. Yep. Then, you know, one of the emergency numbers comes up or it's a section or, or 999 or the equivalent, what have you. And we can feel, I think, that 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 professionals are kind of doing that to to deny that in themselves yes. and also to check their ass. Um, which I don't not have empathy for that. Yeah, me, me too. Uh, but also it's like, can you wait already? Because do you know what I mean? It's kind yes. of like sometimes there are conversations where where that has to be said, but maybe at the end of a session, not in the. There's nothing more alone, alone making than that. But um, yeah, I love, I love, I love, love, love Winnicott and Shaw and things like the still face experiment. And I always kind of thinking it, think of it as you know, if you if you. Uh, if 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 any of your listeners if, if, if watch the the still face experience. we've talked about it on the podcast yeah. and it is just do you want to give the listeners just a bit a brief description of that it it gives it's it's just like a seven minute clip but what it does is there's there's a baby who's obviously got a mother um so the baby's like maybe three or four months um, and the mother is instructed by um, a researcher amazing researcher called Tronic to basically stop doing what 
any good enough caregiver will do naturally, which is have this constant relational dance of attunement. Um, if you, um, if you, I don't know, if you go to the park and you see dogs or you see babies or what have you, if you're in a good state mental health wise, you'll find yourself not just echoing what they do, but kind of dialoguing with them in a really extreme way. It's like, ah, how are you? It's like yes. A- Everyone knows the baby voice with a baby or a dog, right? Yeah. And that in very, very early development, that's absolutely crucial to have from our caregivers because our sense of our own psyche, our sense of our own self, our our sense of our own I comes from their leaving of a gap, a space, and crucially an invitation for us to act within. So if you think kind of like rationally, if you see, you know, like a baby at three months is not going to understand the question the caregiver is asking. But what they do understand is that there's someone that they love that's making all the oxytocin go, that's leaving them a gap. And over time, they come to occupy that gap and that gap becomes their sense of an eye. And that emerges over time before they can speak from that eye. They can think from that eye. They can have a relationship to their own emotions from that eye. Yes. But with the still face experiment, what Tronic does is get this mum to basically not do any of that, like reciprocal dance. Just be like a dead face, right? As it's, it's as dead, like absolutely not hate, just absolutely nothing. Yeah. And we see the baby and we can feel this like kind of like, you know, if you're if you're if you're if you're in a good state and you're watching it, you know, you start to kind of die a little bit inside. Yeah. You see this baby make all these attempts to try and like communicate. The baby reaches out to the mother, but the baby makes like a really big face that that, that mum and, and the baby obviously do when they kind of like are playing together. You know, the baby does all these kind of like limp actions and then comes back to life to try and kind of reignite mum's vitality. And it all fails. And then we have this awful moment where the baby kind of like collapses into absolute despair and we see it start to dissociate. We see it start to dissociate in terms of kind of the the limpness of the limbs, which is a classic kind of like dorsal, like that's where our nervous system is going. I am so relationally at threat, I had to collapse. We see it give up on attempting eye contact to get the mother back. Um, and we see the kind of sort of deadness of that, like real freeze dissociation defense come in. Now we know when we do the still face experiment, like in 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 the research lab, then even if it's a one off incident, there's an amazing research paper that shows after six months, the babies who have been in that arm of the of the research, rather than the babies who who didn't have that one incident only of a few minutes have a higher galvanic, galvanic skin response to stress, i.e. even wow. just in just a couple of minutes of the achievement being off, the stress reactions are bigger. Now, if you think what we're talking about in terms of that overwhelming the big empty, then, you know, you can have, you can have your physical needs done, you can yeah. be fed, you can be watered. But if you're not, there's quite a few different reasons in terms of complex trauma, but this is a crucial one. If you're not, if we're not getting those relational interactions back in a consistent, warm, predictable, playful time, not 100% of the time, because, you know, but kind of like more or less most of the time, then the baby is left growing up without that kind of like anchored sense of self and that 
sense that emotions can be horrible but can be done something with and the the kind of baby adult us is kind of left with that sense of the most absolute pervasive absolute nothingness because that that other that 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 creates us in early life hasn't been there and so then we're in the world in the realms of annihilation anxiety we're in the realms of for me you know walker uses abandonment depression but that's not enough i think that you know it's much it's much it's it it, 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 it is floating alone in space forever it is any metaphors that we grasp that that still don't quite capture it and it's underrecognized so what do we do we blame ourselves and when we're out of that you know we self-medicate or or try and find people who will fill it or all the stuff because it's too big it's too big to cope with it's it's insurmountable what you're sharing is like so it's resonating with me so much because funny enough as a child i i was i was that kid that like couldn't fall asleep because i had i remember asking like literally laying in my bed and going I was horrified of space, of of the ocean, like mm-hmm. anything that had big space that kind of went on forever. It actually really scared me. And I haven't even ever in my life been able to really, I can now more because now I've kind of connected the dots of like why the kind of the big emptiness always scared me. It's because it triggered that inside of me. Like, and I remember laying in bed and what I would ask my parents, what was I before I was born? And then that, that when you die, it's forever and ever and ever. And just that big emptiness, like always scared me. And the em- the big empty really has been like my biggest horror. And when I talk about that, and my parents were so freaked out by me, like asking these questions. I remember my older sister, my mom, my dad, I talked to them and asked about these things. I just remember the response being, why are you thinking about that? Like, why are you thinking about that? Don't think about that. And now I recognize that was their own fear, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and so, but I had the capacity, and I think that that's what I've found in my, the people I've interviewed with lived experience, they don't want to not talk about it. They want to say, but I feel like this. And why are you, So they're just more repressed, (laughs) right? Like than it, and I feel like at least I resonate with any, with someone that's in full psychosis almost more than I do with someone who's going, why would you think about that? It's like, cause we're all going to fucking die. <laughs> That's why it's scary. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, I just think that I wish that there would be less fear and like, Oh, send them away when they're talking about things like that. Like you said, the death drive, the death urge, the big empty, because if there is not something that's more universal, that there's nothing more universal than that. A hundred percent. And and for you to be asking those questions and it's weird the C thing because the C thing is so common. It's like, you know. Is it? I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. It's like, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, well, I, 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 it, you speak so beautifully and uniquely, so I don't mean it in, in, in like a bad way, but it's, it comes up in clinic quite a lot that, wow. you know, if I go beyond four or five places in the, in the sea, I will never come back, you know, yes. it becomes this kind of thing. But there you were kind of like, you know, as, as, as kind of a child and as a teen asking the big existential questions of life, which, you know, kind of need a sort of kind of like a, a kind of sort of Dostoevsky and let's drop everything and kind of just like absolutely kind of like, you know, is there anyone else there? Are we there? How do we 
you know, how do yes. we, like, you know, was there a before, was there an after and all these things? And I think, you know, the way that, 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 that families can't, that can't deal with their own emotions and the, the madness of society and our inability to think of big questions in general kind of often leaves even more trauma on because then, you know, one becomes the kind of odd one. And even if, even if a child, if a family is kind of like more or less healthy, then one becomes the odd one. And then you can feel that people are scared of that sensitivity. And then they start reacting to that. And then that makes someone even more hyper alert. And then yes. you've got this happening again and again and again. And then you get to the teenage years and you start getting into trouble or shit or whatever it might be. Do you know what I mean? Because you're kind of like, oh God, I need to find my group because my family are not it. Do you know what I mean? Literally. And I definitely did not do a good job of finding good groups when I was a teenager. That's for sure. But I did, you know, I fell into shoplifting a lot. I was, I, you know, was hypersexual and mm-hmm. I, you know, and it was all this attempt, I think. Like I remember I've told this story before. My mom walked into my room and I was surrounded by just a pile of shit that I'd stolen from Target, like so much stuff. And I was 15 or something. So of course I couldn't have bought all this. And I just remember my mom walking in and just kind of looking at it, looking at me and then just walking out. Like didn't even want to go there. Right. And I actually ended up getting, having to go to court for shoplifting. I didn't even tell my parents. I went to court by myself. Um, Yeah. Like, because I was so ashamed, you know, like, and I remember this, just another privilege moment, right? Like I had shoplifted like $300 worth of makeup. It's very easy to steal a high value of makeup with a small amount of things. So I was like, it sounds like a lot, but I just stole this makeup that I didn't even need. Like it was so stupid. And I faced the judge and the judge looked at me and he said, what are you doing here? Like this I better never see you here again. And he gave me like a fine. But why? Because I'm like pretty little white teenage girl, right? Whereas if who knows if I had presented differently what my sentence would have been, right? And same, I've been pulled over for drunk driving and gotten let out. I never got a DUI. You know what I mean? Because every time it was either a pervy cop or a daddy cop that was like, saw me as his daughter. And if I, and I cry and it wasn't a fake cry, of course be, I'm sobbing because I'm scared that I was going to go to jail. And the cop literally said, get back in your car, drive home and I'll follow you home. Right. Mm -hmm. Would that have happened to anyone? Like, you know what I mean? My partner is black and like, what if that were him? Right. Like how would he have been treated if he got pulled over? I had a beer in my cup holder of the car wasted at like I think I was 19 underage and privilege. I hear you. I hear you. And 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 you know and and we both know and, and and all the listeners will know as well that you know had that been someone who is racialized, has that been someone who's black and brown, had that been someone who's poorer, had that been someone yes. who you know, kind of, um, you know, who had a different response than me, even like exactly. I cried and I said, Oh, little me, like, and I kind of took that role. It wasn't an act, but like it made them feel like, let me save this little cute teenage girl. And, you know, instead of if I had more of an aggressive response, like what would that have been or hysterical, you know? You know what, Molly, even though, you know, completely we acknowledge much, much, much worse trajectories in terms of things like the law that, that could have happened based on identities and privilege. At the same time, I feel really, really sad when you're speaking mm. because what I'm hearing is, okay, that judge wasn't, you know, like he was kind of kind, but he was also kind of grossly insufficient because, you know, he didn't come back 
you know, to the back of the room or get someone to and go, you know, do you need some help right now? Yeah. You are know? you okay? Why are you exactly. stealing? <laughs> same, with you, same with your mom, you know, kind of like, you know, you think kind of like, oh, great, got away with it. Brilliant. I've got an easy mom. Absolutely not. Kind of like, you know, what, Literally. what is going on? And, and I think there is, I think sometimes that invisibility cloak in terms of like distress manifesting, um, you know, it, it, all it, all it does is it means that, that, that one has to escalate for the kind of, you know, the help function, yes. even if it's not like an overt function, as in, I want someone to help me, but just as in, I think sometimes, you know, we can do things to like adrenalize us to just like, you know, yeah, get the buzz. Get, exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and, and feel anything, alive. Exactly. Anything risk-taking makes you, you know, crap relationships yeah. and sex yeah. work, and the, you know, all make us feel more alive, even if we know they're dangerous or, or, or not. Um, I'm really pro sex work, by the way. So I don't. Oh yeah, same. I'm. I feel about sex work. You know, I think there's a lot of people that need to do trauma work before they continue with their sex work. Because I can tell you right now, I was not in a good place to be doing sex work. I know a lot of fully integrated, like women who are and women and people of all genders who are doing sex work from like a fully integrated, really empowered place where they're healers. And then there are, I think, people who are without knowing doing what I was doing, which was, fuck it, if men are going to treat me like shit, I might as well just get money for it. And that is so damaging on your spirit. Exactly. And I I mean, I couldn't couldn't agree more. And I I think, you know, for me with social media, like apart from get rid of BPD as a a label, because I just can't stand the character of assassination. But apart from that, I always feel nearly all my tweets say the same thing, which is kind of like, Stuff, stuff's complicated and it's both and and like you yes. know sex work has saved and saved so many people I know it can be so reclaimist it can be so healing it can be so powerful it can also be so incredibly re-traumatizing yes. and you know can be you know yeah can make things worse we never know until we speak to the person and even then sometimes you know what it's like and this is why I'm such an advocate for like not necessarily long-term therapy, but some kind of long-term healing process. I think yes. therapy sometimes, I, I obviously I adore therapy. It's part of my, my, my beef, you know, but um, um, I think it's that process of like having some kind of a work that's safe enough to do with someone who can bear witness where we can go into the unconscious because sometimes uh, I know with me when I was doing like super, super, super reckless, dangerous stuff back in the day, I would have given myself as much as anyone else, like such a, uh, yeah, you know, of course it's fine. I can't even do it anymore. Kind of like, you know, yeah. you know, the, the kind of the, the secondary reaction we do to kind of protect from ourselves as well, the primary truth of what's going on. And it takes time to put the secondary away to get to the primary. Um, right. Yeah. And, but then, you know, we have all this like stuff in the ether where, you know, people are super, super pro sex work, or they're super, super against sex work. And it's like, there's, it's like, yeah, the answer is always in the middle, isn't it? You know what I mean? Exactly. Ah, and you know what you saying that makes me think of another thing that you tweeted, because it's like, there is really harmful sex work, there's really healing sex work. And then there might be stuff in between where there's a little bit of both, right? And then ditto with medication, isn't it all the same, right? I was once on six different psychiatric drugs at once and they were all having counter what they were doing. It it didn't work for me. 
But then there are some people who it's like it can save your life, right? So it's just, but I am of the belief that with the medical model, we've just gone too far to the extreme, right? Like, because when I went to a GP in the UK, that was the first place I went for mental health treatment. And while it's amazing that the NHS exists, because it's just a whole different thing here, my experience with the NHS was really scary. I had a kidney infection once where I was like left in a cold room for eight hours. They forgot about me in a hospital for real. Like I was at Homerton Hospital. That's where it was. And I know you laugh. Yeah. Yeah, you you know. So like, I know. So I was there, right? And it was probably one of the, they wouldn't let anyone come see me. I was like, I was actually so horrified. I hated every second. They gave me the wrong, I was supposed to get like an ultrasound for my kidneys. They gave me a CAT scan and then left me in a room for eight hours in a tiny hospital gown freezing. Yeah. And then I go to a GP and say like, I'm feeling really depressed because I had had that, um, you know, the situation with an employer where that, you know, there was a sexual harassment situation. And I was just told, here you go, citalopram, done and dusted, just take it. And nothing else. Not like, hey, there's going to be like, there are withdrawal issues with this. Like we may have to put you up on a higher dose. You may experience sexual side effects, which for me, I absolutely did. Ever since I stopped taking uh, SSRIs, my sex drive is just completely destroyed. And I know Mm -hmm. there's a whole uh, thing about that, you know, like, and so I just wish that I would have been told that, hey, you can take this um, here's your options, but I also recommend that maybe you talk to a therapist and let me put you in touch with someone or guide you through that. But it was just take this pill and you'll feel better and get out next patient. And so I, yeah, I'm so, sorry. Go ahead. Please, please, please. I think that that's what I mean is I, it's hard to do what you're doing and and take an activist stance without people putting you in the camp of saying, Oh, you're anti-medication. You're anti uh, this. And you talked about, and this is my question for you is, and I'd never heard this. You were talking about how DBT can actually be a, a traumatizing thing for some people. And reading your tweets critical about DBT, I, I was like, I have to ask her about this because DBT is seen as the holy grail of of uh, you know BPD treatment. However. I myself, when I got these big ass, thick ass books, I was like, how is this homework going to help me? And when I'm feeling like I want to jump off a bridge, how am I going to be like, let me just do dear man really quick. Like, (laughs) so, but then I have people who, by the way, I'm not, I'm not splitting on DBT. I think they're incredibly helpful concepts too, but I just think that I've talked to a lot of people who have been put in DBT and they feel like because it quote unquote doesn't work for them, they think that they're broken and unfixable because that's the holy grail. Can you, now that I'm done with my rant, I'd love to hear your reaction. Well, yeah, I've yet to hear you rant. You know, okay. you're, you're doing false promises of me with the rant. So you, oh, okay. Um, just a quick word on the medication first. I, I mean, for me, just in general, I, there is nothing I hate more than binaries, yes. you know, in, in, in all the senses. Um, so I'm just going to uh, carry on speaking whilst. Oh, go ahead. My um, charger. Yeah. Um, I know. I know the feeling. And so bizarrely, 
to my absolute, um, um, I mean, you know, 20 something, 30 something me would like fall over backwards, but I actually now sometimes on the socials defend medication um, because I can't, I, I, I can't, I can't, I, I come, you know, one of my backgrounds is, is from a kind of gaslighting kind of booming background. And so I've kind of realized that I hate people. The thing that I can't stand is that it's someone in pain and suffering being told what to do. Yes. And we have a bigger problem with that with psychiatry and medication than we do with psychology and psychotherapy. But we also have a real problem with that with psychology and psychotherapy. And sometimes psychology and psychotherapy is, you know, is basically telling people with lived experience who are saying medication is working for me and this is life-saving for me. And they're going, oh, no, it's not because that's medical model, it's trauma. And I, I personally, I find that just as violent in a way. I agree. And it, it, it scares me. Um, so, yeah, so with with with, with meds, all, all that I want with that is I want the medical model to loosen its grip. Yes. There is a genuine possibility of choice for survivors, for patients, because when it is so overreaching in terms of every interaction and what's sold and, you know, how one gets demonized for not having insight or all of those things, or, you know, kind of, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not seeking help in the right way and you've got personality disorder, whatever. Those are things whereby the the survivor, the person with lived experience isn't actually having a choice because they're being occupied by psychiatric thinking. But if psychiatric thinking wants to chill a bit, um, then I'm, <laughs> I'm more for it as one chill. of Exactly, you know, as one of kind of several options, and medication has medication isn't necessarily linked to the medical model. This is, you know, it's like a little bit like you know, if you the example I always kind of think of is uh, if I don't know a sixty-something woman is bereaved suddenly, she goes to the GP, she can't sleep for four or five days, um, you know, and she's absolutely hysterical because she's in grief. Mm-hmm. She's she's going to be given Valium. She's now neither neither the GP nor her is going to think that suddenly she's just miraculously and coincidentally kind of got a mental illness Mm -hmm. you know since we go back to our witches you know since since the the Wiccan days people use substances to downpone and galvanize the nervous system and we can think about medication in that way but it just it's the overselling that I think is the real kind of violence with DBT, um, the thing that drives me bonkers about DBT is how it is oversold, and it's oversold in a way that denies um, survivors other equally evidence-based options. Mm-hmm. It is oversold as something that substantiates and legitimizes kind of BPD as a as a diagnostic category because it's basically there's a kind of like an emotional blackmail that that that, that happens to to professionals and lived experience when they start to challenge these ideas where basically one gets like a finger wagged and go well if you don't believe in in in, in BPD then you know before 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 DBT people were dumped in a river and DBT saved everyone and DBT is just for BPD and 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 so if you trouble that at all then you're going against patients which is frankly complete and total bullshit and <laughs> it's like if you don't accept our dogma then you are anti anti-human exactly. and you're, you're part you know you're not just part of the problem you're you're you're, you're depriving people that you say and you get all these kind of moral insinuations dbt dbt is basically linehan came along marshall linehan all respect to her 
For sure. Taking, you know, uh, became a professional from having been a patient and wanted to do something um, to get services going. And what she did is she put together with DBT, she, I'm, as you know, from a Buddhist background. Um, and so when I first came across DBT, I was like, uh, this is Buddhism, this is Buddhism, this is Buddhism. Yeah. And basically what it is, again, no disrespect to people who find it useful, but half of it is literally like, you know, classic Buddhist texts. And then there's a couple, and then there are a couple of other things which are basically what a good caregiver teaches a child within the first, you know, kind of like eight years of life. Yeah. And listen, a lot of us really need that because we haven't had that in those years. And actually those kind of like, you know, how do you self-soothe? How do you not take thoughts so literally? How do you kind yes. of like communicate a need? There's a, a basic like ibuprofen kind of things that aren't anything to do with BPD, let alone legitimizing it as a, as a standalone category. They're just toolbox things that anyone who has had a kind of fractured start in life, frankly, could benefit from. And that's what the evidence base shows us. The evidence base shows us clearly that the DBT is useful for some people, some of the times, but there's actually nothing specific in it at all. And even worse, and this is the thing where I get really, really, really political, is DBT um, is fundamentally about, you know, making us easier to manage it is about, you know, kind of like, you know, the two goals that DBT was was created for was, you know, to reduce suicide attempts and to reduce hospital admissions. Yep. And those are obviously things that survivors care about, but they're actually the outcomes that 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 would, would they, they're not about quality of life. They're not about being able to have psychologically rich relationships. They're not about, you know, being able to integration. Be <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. They're about the goals of the state and yeah. the goals of the scientists. And because they are not survivors' goals, then they miss things like any nearly I, I, I've yet to, you know, I'll think about whether I mean this afterwards, but you know, when people, especially with so many, many, many people having been through trauma, and nearly everyone is either neurodivergent or has been through complex trauma or an admixture of the both very often. People want to talk. People want to process trauma. And one of the things that I, I I really ethically tears me apart because I've got the classic trauma survivor kind of, I can't bear seeing injustice, I know. Um, is where you're having people who are going to services going, I, I was abused. I was physically abused. I was in multiple foster care. I was in so forth. I want to be able to speak about this. I need to be able to process my trauma. I need one mother to listen to me and bear witness to me in my whole life. And actually, even though there is an evidence base that trauma-focused therapy works incredibly well for people labeled with BPD, people with BPD do not get it because of the idea that DBT is what is needed. And that actively silences and shuts down um, stories of abuse and stories of survival and stories of complex trauma and that is not an apolitical thing to do that's a bloody political thing to do so I I will always as a not just as a provider but as a you know in solidarity I will always support the existence of DBT because there are loads of people who love it and all good respect to that I'm not out to get rid of DBT but I'm out to get rid of DBT as something that solidifies BPD or and something that is used to deprive people of 
what we know is at least as equally healing, which is storytelling. Yes. And, and that, that's why I go hard on, on, on DPT sometimes. I think that that's really beautifully put for, I think there was someone that responded. There's always such good discussion going on on your Twitter. Cause you shared something about that and someone, another lived experience person, cause they kind of spoke about, they had, had the BBD label. And she said that she felt like, when she was in DBT, it was about, it was about getting her under control, like, you know, really making it. And it made me think, you know, BPD is such, um, it's so, so many more female presenting people are diagnosed with, with BPD. And it's just essentially, it feels like the new hysteria to me, you Mm. know, and, and it's, and DBT, when I was going through it, it was like, where's the part that's helping me connect with my body. And, and, and for me, I'm just now getting to a part in my, you know, my, my spiritual journey. I'm, I'm really, I'm a seeker when it comes to that. As you know, I've been wondering about life and death since I was like four years old, asking very scary questions to everyone. And I've now found a passion in um, researching spirituality. And only just now, after I've done my trauma work, after I've worked with people to help get me back into my body, after having the privilege to be able to get into a safe space with a really um, amazing partner who is the first man that I've been able to be with that just is a a good, securely attached human, only now can I even think about meditation, right? Or even think about exploring Buddhist concepts because people that are traumatized, if you sit there and ask them to like do mindfulness or something, it's actually really scary and really traumatizing. And to, to go straight in with being like, we need to emotionally regulate you before someone can like vomit out all of the shit that's been done to them, it feels wrong. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's kind of like, I sort of kind of, I always think of it, or always, I sometimes think of it as, as like, you know, it, it kind of tells you how, how to be a human and at, exactly as you say, how to be a human female very, very, very often yeah. in terms of how you should behave and how you should feel and how you should think. And some people, absolute no disrespect, complete respect for this. Some people are like, thank God, at last, someone's going to tell me and that's going to be really, really useful. But for others who experience it as like cult-like, and that's a word that comes up again and again, including on Twitter, it's like the exact opposite of what's needed, which is then demonized as, oh, you're treatment resistant, because those people are, are, are sort of saying, you know, I know my emotions, my feelings, my thoughts, they're, they're trying to get something communicated. They're trying to get something processed. They're trying, they have things to say. Yes. Actually, when you are saying to me, frankly, this is how you mask, it kind of teaches people at some level to mask. Again, some people just think, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, how some people love Sims and they're like, oh, great, this is how to be human. Yeah. Other people running for the hills, especially if there's a grooming background, because they're like, no, the last thing I need to do is mask. Literally. It's like, yeah. I'm already too good at that. Exactly. Thanks. Exactly. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm an expert. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so oh. then it's, again, it's another thing I think that does that, 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 that kind of psi ideas, including therapy ideas, do to split the BPD community against one another, because people don't, you know, it's even just this idea that there's a homogenized, you know, that you meet one person with BPD, you meet, you know, one person with yeah, BPD. Yeah, stick them in the box and it'll you work. No. Exactly. exactly. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how these systems perpetuate 
the minimization of of, of female and, and and feminized groups experience it's that's that's what they do it's shocking um, yeah so okay. I, yeah we need to kind of like I always find it fa- fascinating that like also especially when I, I try not to go to PD conferences because I find them too triggering um, <laughs> yeah, I can you know, yeah, I'm always like yeah I'm not going for ethical reasons but I just like no I'm too triggered if I go there um, yeah one of the things I find fascinating is 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 that there is a lot of idealization from staff to about these kind of treatments, and it's quite interesting because, like, you know, people like who've been labelled as having BPD are often getting labelized as idealizing and denigrating, and it's very often the staff that are doing it. So there's like, this is the holy grail that you must do, leaving everyone else, you know, like feeling like a fallout, and and you know, yeah. That is, it's so fascinating because I, I've, I've experienced that as well. Like you say one uh, kind of critical thing about DBT and it's like a, it's a spicy reaction, right? Like, but I think it's so interesting because the connecting thread to everything that you've shared so far is really aligned with how I feel where it's just, everyone is so different. And this whole, like putting these people who you label with a label that's already problematic and then shoving mm-hmm. them into the track that gives you the results you want as the mm-hmm. system. And then you're surprised that these people get worse. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not really that complicated, <laughs> it, but I have my next question for you because this is the topic that I was so excited to ask you about. You tweet quite a bit, the hashtag autism, not PD, right? Mm-hmm. And I have had some incredible conversations with a prominent BPD creator who I won't name her, um, but she and I have had some incredible discussions. I had a Discord channel that I started and I, I, I got rid of that really fast. It grew to about like 800 people really fast. And then I realized that, but imagine having 800 people who all have BPD labels or identify with BPD I realized very quickly that it wasn't ethical and I couldn't moderate it in a safe manner. And it was a whole thing, but I met a few really amazing people on that discord. And one of them, I will also not name her long story short. We all just got into this discussion where women and autism, and then how much crossover there is, is it autism or is it BPD? Mm -hmm. And when I saw you tweeting about, um, you know, autism, not PD. And for the listeners, like, I imagine you mean not personality disorder in yeah. that. I'd love to hear. I I hadn't looked at the autism, how autism presents in women, like especially like high functioning. I don't like that label. But when I think of autism, I helped out with the children's choir when I was little. It was one of my favorite things. And one of my favorite little girls that I worked with was Josie and she was autistic. And she was like not very functional, right? You know, like she couldn't speak properly and she's still one of my my favorite little girls to work with, but I saw autism as how she presented with autism. She wasn't able to communicate. She would break down, you know what I mean? And have a lot of meltdowns, but I didn't see, that's not how I presented. So I always just never really looked into autism. And then lately after I spoke with it about this creator, I looked up this list, Jay, and I was like, I see a lot of shit on there that sounds like me. And then I'm like, I want almost to go get an autism screening for science purposes, just for the podcast, because I feel like when I look at the traits and symptoms of BPD, I I don't meet that criteria anymore because I don't meet five out of the nine, but I relate to those. I relate AF to CPTSD. And now I look up autism and I'm like, 
oh my God, maybe that's what's going on. So can you talk a little bit about this autism, not PD hashtag? Because I see a lot of people using it now. 100%, 100%. When we kind of, when we started like talking about it in um, in the kind of like trauma, not PD. So that's like a, a thing in, 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 in the UK and Europe where, where we kind of sort of meet and what have you. Um, it became very, very, very clear that everyone with the BPD label was not just different, but that um, not everyone had experienced complex trauma. Mm. So one of the reasons why this kind of modern version of the label hysteria remained was because every, someone critical will go, oh, it's all trauma. And then they go, oh, yes, but not by X, Y, Z. And then so we started kind of like interrogating, right, what, what might be going on instead. And at the same time, really kind of like within the last eight or nine years, like female autism and what it presents like, there's been more and more research and very, very, very much thanks to some amazing, actually autistic um, uh, uh, kind of lived experience writers, activists, etc. So we know quite a lot about female autism now, and we know it's very, very different from that kind of like, you know, Sheldon from the Big Bang kind of template that we all have. So yeah. when we think of autism, we kind of basically think of the, I'm going to use AMAB as an assigned male at birth, because obviously when we're, we're talking about that, we're including lots of um, trans women and, and, and non-binary folk as well. Of course. Um, people have that kind of like sort of kind of idea that either someone is like really intellectually, um, you know, um, um, uh, disadvantaged and sort of, you know, in an institution for life or they're Sheldon. And actually with female autism, what AFAB people do is they're absolutely brilliant at masking or camouflaging. Absolute genius. So basically because of that, everything is different in early life. And that means that both parents and GPs and educators, so like uh, send workers and even mental health providers, they, they're looking for the male template. And if they don't hear, if they ask some very simple questions about early development, what they're probably going to hear with an AFAB um, autistic presentation is a child who was maybe a little bit quiet and maybe a little bit sensitive, um, maybe just have one or two intense friendships, kind of maybe like playing by themselves and like being in a dream world and stuff. They're not going to hear anything that would make you think um, uh, anything but neurotypical child because of the fact that this relational bias that anyone from a feminized group is socialized into means that on, for, on, from the off, we're trying to kind of like look around us at what, what people do and what do girls do? The people who are like us the most, we think in a very small age, well, they are, they relate to each other than they have. So we have a very, 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 very different early history. Um, and what we find is with AFAB autism, problems only become visible at all about kind of eight, nine, 10, where you get some kind of, you know, maybe a little bit of bullying because you know what kids are like, kids are genius. Kids can smell different. So they have a name for it. The adults are like, oh, she's just a bit shy. She's absolutely fine. You know, Um, she she just really likes reading. Nothing strange. The kids are like, okay, something's a bit odd about that kid. And And they don't want to have the weirdness rub off on them. Right. Exactly. exactly. I mean, they're so like, you know, kids are just so like normative, you know? (laughs) Um, And so because of that, we don't with, with AFAB autism, there's just the beginnings of interpersonal problems by eight, nine, 10, but then it's only like about 14, 15 in the teenage years, the early twenties, 
that problems become manifest. Mm-hmm. And when mental health providers see that, well, the moment that they hear that anxiety and depression and problems emerged at that age, they immediately exclude autism because they're like, well, autism, you know, if it was autism, we'd know from the early history. And what we're hearing is the problems just started, you know, 14, 16, kind of whatever. So what happens then is that, you know, people get misdiagnosed, people get mislabeled as having mental health problems, rather than an explanation, accommodations for, for autism, because literally that's just not seen. And at the same time as that is happening, the world is getting more different, if this makes sense. So, so you know, if you think kind of like if you're eight and nine, you start getting eight, eight mean girls antics. By the time you're like 12 and 13, I mean, you know, like at school, how complicated it is. You know, a normal conversation will have the emotional subtext of a of a, of a kind of like Dickens novel. I mean, you know. Dude, you could not pay me to go back to fucking junior high. Exactly. It was drama. Exactly. So if you've got... AFAB autism and you're undiagnosed and you're at junior high and you can feel at some level that you're getting it wrong because you've got a more concrete relationship to language. If you've got the, you know, the AFAB thing of kind of like, you know, um, kind of, um, you know, maybe having something that you're, you're especially interested in that your peers are kind of beginning to act like that's a bit more babyish and you can feel that. So you stop doing that because you're really good at encouraging. So you're like, yeah. I was obsessed with Harry Potter as a child, you know, like as every millennial girl was at the time. Right. (laughs) And my, I remember Jay bringing friends to my room in like junior high because I had a Harry Potter room and I had a sleepover. And I remember when all the girls walked into my room because I had collectibles, I had it all. And they all looked at each other and Jay, it was like, I shit you not, a month after that, I had my dad redo my whole room because these girls made so much fun of me for having a Harry Potter room. And I was so excited to show them. Oh, it makes me want to cry because I feel so bad for that little girl. Ugh. You need to go back to her and give her some love. I know. I mean, that is, you know, that would be a classic thing mm-hmm. that someone who was undiagnosed would say. Obviously, yeah. no, that would be because... It's like there's a kind of lack of realization that, yes. that 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 a special interest is like suddenly being neurotypically seen as age inappropriate. Yes, but because like you know, autistic girls are so brilliant at, cam- at camouflaging and masking. They're like, okay, all right, well, I've missed the cue, so I feel shit. So I'm going to get down to get rid of it. Yeah. So then you feel really, really worse. And then you copy what the other kids are doing. And then you're like, okay, well, they're interested in boys. I'm going to pretend to be interested in boys, whatever it might be. You might be as well, yeah. yeah. And even just like, you know, you did that, you know, if you don't mind me saying, you did a microaggression on yourself because yeah. you said, you know, like all the other, like, you know, like any millennial. So you dismissed like, yeah. you know, like you were giving really serious testimony about this real, really, you know. And so that, because we've all been taught to kind of like microaggress and be like, okay, that's just normal. Mm. That stops both us and educators, educators and health providers asking the kind of questions to see how detailed you were about it. Yes. Yeah. And you saw my, you saying that too. I'm glad you brought up the microaggression on myself thing because it can be so subtle, right? Like, and I wasn't even aware of that just now. And I feel like that's why it's so important that people speak to someone like you, you know? It's it's it, it's so because you you know you you just in that you you know and we all do this you you killed a part of yourself that had something yeah. really beautiful to say yeah. and that was saying something really really beautiful and 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 
and and and and it's so important that we have you know that we stop doing that to ourselves even though it's a, it's a lifelong thing that we we have to kind of work on but you know with the AFAB autism you know someone will go in to say they'll go you know even now where there's more awareness they'll go into an assessment and they'll go I didn't have a special interest or they'll go I had a Harry Potter room um but you know all millennial girls did yeah. and then because of the bias on behalf of the assessors because they've been taught the male you know the male template oh well that's not you know that's not Sheldon recreating a rocket yeah, yeah. so everything that, that you know with autism like the way autistic girls have meltdowns the yeah. way autistic girls have special interests the kind of things that autistic girls like hyper focus get obsessed on they they look more normative Mm-hmm. Uh, they look more neurotypical or than, like hysterical women exactly but they are just as just as indicative of autism and actually we know that when uh, autistic girls and women and feminized groups are brilliant at masking and camouflaging they're not like you know, and you were right, I hate the word high-functioning too. They weren't high-functioning because we know that the better one is at masking and camouflaging, well, the world might like it. They're hurting more inside. And this is where it starts going to to what professionals think is is borderline because then the pattern starts looking very, very different. So say if one's going along, yeah, so you're going along, having to camouflage to you know oneself and the world the whole time trying to be neurotypical trying to rub out aspects of oneself trying to mold the self in a way that is like girl typical uh, woman typical as if that were not based on a neurotypical idea of girlhood and womanhood and that becomes too much especially if we've got that you know, physical sensitivity and the sense where we get the sensory overload, then it's unsustainable. And so we do three things. We we melt down, which obviously gets seen as BPD. Um, uh, We shut down, you know, go quiet, go silent, retreat. That gets seen as manipulative or attention-seeking, especially because, like, autistic girls will often freeze when they're doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, kind of like... If a mental health provider sees someone kick off and scream because they're in sensory overload because of autism and then suddenly go quiet and just stare at them, then the the mental health provider will be like BPD, you know, attention-seeking, manipulative, had control the whole time. On on their little notepad that the person then has to read later and be horrified. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, it's horrendous with, with notes. It's just awful. Um, or they burn out and collapse and go into something which can feel very much like, you know, it, like a lot of autistic girls and women in feminized groups will will talk about emptiness. And so basically, if you think of the dynamic and also a lot of self-injury to because if one's getting a lot of sensory overload with the body, then if one does things like cut or or rip hair out, it gives a sense of control. I mean, self-injury is always something positive and something negative, right? We know that. Yeah. And so what we have then is you've got autistic girls and females. There's a time lag between first uh, presentation to a mental health provider and correct diagnosis with autism of 12 years. That's international. And so you have this presentation about 12, 13, 14 with anxiety and depression, doesn't get picked up, gets neurotypical treatment, 
situation gets worse and the girl or woman starts self-harming, self-medicating, doing all that stuff, the mental health provider sees, okay, camouflaging and masking. They don't know that's camouflaging and masking so that they think that then when a meltdown or burnout or shutdown happens, it happens for no reason. And then they start going emotional ability because of BPD. And then there's the mortifying shame and emptiness, which autistic girls and women have. And we know where we're going there. And so we find that a lot of autistic girls and women are stuck in the BPD category because uh, the clinicians don't know what they're doing. And, and it's it's male bars with autism. And, you know, the clinicians have this idea they know what BPD is and what it looks like. And 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 they're just applying it the whole time to autistic girls and women. And it's it, I, I literally do not exaggerate when it says it kills people. There yeah. is, uh, there is, um, uh, we lost in 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 the UK community. We we've lost quite a few autistic girls and women. Uh, if I can name check Zoe Zarimbra, who who you know who many people in the north of England, especially and and myself, though I didn't get to know her, kind of mourn for still. Mm-hmm. And it is the BPD protocols being applied to autistic girls and women who uh, who aren't being recognised as such because of the BPD construct. And it is a scandal, Molly. It's Excuse like me for that, very, that was a rant from my, I'm so passionate about no, it. No, that's what you're, you're here on the podcast to rant. <laughs> that's what I want. I mean, that, I think this episode's going to be so illuminating. And I don't want listeners to be like, oh, I definitely have autism. But I also want listeners to be like, I feel like BPD is this catch-all diagnosis, isn't it? And Jay, I did a whole episode on the origins of the BPD label because it's so important. Like if you're going to get this label, you should know like the history behind it. Long story short, was created by a few psychiatrists, men almost a hundred years ago, who were basically admitted, we're kind of confused about this. We don't know exactly what we're seeing. So we're going to call it on the borderline of neurosis and psychosis. It literally manifested as a confusion. We don't know what the fuck this is. So I guess this works. And now here we are. And then we are. And it's, it's actually like, that head fucked, isn't it? It's that it is that bad. And if you look in like um so so the ICD is like the European version mm-hmm. of DSM. Oh and it's um, EUPD, right? Where you guys exactly. are yeah no no but the, but they um BPD and so okay so we time checked that a hundred years ago. A lot of men, no doubt white men, no idea what was going on. Let's just do this thing. The ICD was going to get rid of, because of the lack of scientific reliability and validity, um, borderline EUPD, literally until the 11th hour. The group of diagnosticians were so split that there had to be a splinter group of them. And because of I'm afraid I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna blame you Americans for a second. Okay. Because of the insurance, <laughs> because of the insurance company system in the states, basically the DSM. So the DSM, the American Bible, as you know, they knew that whatever the ICD lot decided would then go into DSM six, basically uh-huh. the birth after the the one that's just kind of come in, and so they basically said it's going to screw up our insurance. If you don't keep seriously, if you don't keep EUPD borderline in. And so literally the chair of the ICD-11 almost resigned on this reason because it has no scientific reliability and validity. The pain, different level shit, no question. But the actual clustering of it is one thing. 
absolutely has no reliability and validity. And literally, it kind of says that in the ICD. It literally kind of says, you know, we're only doing this for political reasons. And so what we have is... I had no idea about that. Was that recent? It was recent, yeah. So we have 100 years, whereby here we are in 2023, 100 years of, frankly, pretty much no one scientifically believing that this is a really meaningful construct. My own feeling is that it's 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 always either complex trauma or ADHD, we might talk about another time, or very, very often female autism, or occasionally like bipolar too, or nearly often a mixture of that with a good old good old dose of shit life syndrome and poverty yeah. and if you, that that really really kind of pretty much explains everyone just from the and the the diagnostic point of view but a hundred years on this thing that 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 you know people have quite consistently you know people in the 1920s were protesting against hysteria women especially marginalized groups have been have been saying this is the most damaging thing you can say of me like and here we are still because no one is brave enough just to go stop inheriting something that we don't know. This is what they fudged at the last minute, the ITD 11. Um, they fudged it at the last minute. They were, they, they, they'd they got rid of it and then they put it back in because they got scared and they need some survivor courage. Do you know what I mean? You they know, sure just jump. It's like I, we were talking about before we hit record on the podcast. It's, Nobody wants to redo their homework. It's just like that. Oh, it'll mess up the insurance systems in the states, so we just can't. It's like clearly yeah, the exactly. systems are stating what they care about, and it's not the people. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that's the box. And it's like, for God's sake, you know. That's that's mm. really infuriating. Well, Jay, it's clear that I'm going to have to have you back. So I hope that you're okay to be a repeat guest <laughs> because I could actually talk to you for hours upon end. But I do have. Do you have time for just a couple other questions? A couple more, yeah. Okay, I, yeah. They will have to, yeah. It's so. quite late for you, so I just want to. Um, and these will be these will be a bit quicker. Uh, well, God, I'm gonna. I don't want to jinx sure, us. Sure. <laughs> it goes along with what you're saying. This tweet by you, I just was like, this is great. We're basically all in a low key toxic relationship with the idea of mental health reform. What, what did you mean by that? Because I was like, I love this. Because it's kind of like it's um it, it it it's like you know in like a toxic relationship where you, you keep on going around the cycle of abuse in in big forms or small forms where they're like you know no I'm going to be different this time um you know believe me I've changed I'm going to go into therapy you know I'm going to treat yes. you well you're the universe to me I'm going to give you what you want basically that's mental health reform um where you basically keep on getting promised you know um uh, BPD is not going to be and demonized anymore you're going to get resources you're going to get you know proper proper kind of crisis care what have you and like a kind of, we have this advert in the UK, you probably saw it when you lived here, where there's this like dog who just kind of like, um, it's like, a, I don't know, it's like a model dog in this car advert that just like nods, kind of like whatever's going on, just nods. Yes. And I think kind of in terms of our low-key our toxic relationship, we're just doing that with, yeah, just... with, with this kind of like promise that we don't kind of believe, but we kind of desperately want to believe like in those toxic relationships. When actually what we have to just do is, and this is where, 
we have to be just strident as activists and just go, actually, no, not that. Let's just reimagine the script. And I think the moment we don't, you know, the moment we compromise on that, I think people think like, okay, let's do the kind of middle class kind of like compromise and just like we don't quite believe them, but we're accepted. And we know from the history of everything, mental health and otherwise, that never works. And so... I think we just need to rip it up and and do what one has to do in a toxic relationship, which is leave and yeah. and create a new relationship with people who actually want to learn and co-create and all that stuff. I couldn't agree more with that. And um, so my last question for you is then, how do you think change will happen? And what do you see? You're obviously really deeply involved in this world. And what are you most excited about right now to be seeing? Because I'd love to leave the listeners also with a window into a more hopeful future because there are amazing activists out there like Mm -hmm. you that are doing so much work. So I'd love to hear about what you're excited about seeing right now. And and what do you think the future looks like if, if some of this stuff takes hold? 100%. I mean, in the the activism and the active and the younger activists coming through as well for me as an oldie, the the creativity and the passion and the innovation is genuinely doing things in in certainly in the UK. There is a moment right now, and it's unclear which way it's going to go. But we have um, uh, an amazing uh, woman called Jo Lamani, um, who is uh, a lived, the first lived experience worker we've got, who is working with an amazing, 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 amazing group of other lived experience activists in NHS England, which is, um, uh, well, it, it, that, that, that's the, the state provider. So that's, that, that's we're, we're, we're there, there are still obstacles. We're getting, proper lived experience power in the right place and there is a chance if there is a real chance for the first time since I've been around that there's going to be a pathway for abuse survivors based on uh Lamani et al's report last year which is away from the BPD label and the character assassination you know, however someone presents, which would be an absolute gift and is it's not necessarily going to happen, but it's that's never been closer to happening. Oh. The actually actual the hashtag actually autistic community is um doing amazing work with the hashtag trauma not PD community in terms of what we're basically doing is we're, de- we're deconstructing borderline personality disorder to give people who lived experience more choice and to make sure that everyone's got diagnosis if they want that are useful that consider all the options rather than, and, and that is really beginning, even like really mainstream people are, are beginning to change their mind based on that. Mm-hmm. And then we also have some organizations like Healing Justice Network, like, traumascapes where people with lived experience are just going well damn the state isn't working we're just setting up our own you know kind of like social enterprises and um as an oldie I have an anxiety about those that they're they're brilliant and they're amazing and they don't need someone like me but the anxiety that I slightly happen to have with that is what's going to happen in three or four years because there's always been a history of radical activism where the grant money ends 
But those those rock my world and those excite me and those inspire me in just the same way as I mean, I'm I'm so, so, so lucky. My 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 clients kind of blow my mind every day with their the things that they create as solutions to trauma. So I think those kind of things and more widespread thinking about trauma-informed care, which is slowly coming in, it really is, yeah. but it's coming in, is really exciting. And and the existence of podcasts like yours that 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 provide language and that give language and that give hope and uh, you know I, I I bow to to all of this so much and I think you know if we can carry on doing this and making sure that we're including people who have even even less of a voice yes. you know especially intersectionally I think if we do that then there there is the chance of of of, of a better a different world and I, I'm I, I know you and I'm sure every single listener wherever they're at right now whether on the floor or you know that, that that they're going to be part of that at some point and that's really exciting for me oh beautifully said Jay I just thank you for the kind words about the podcast and also thank you for being out there doing the hard work because it's not easy to be in a position like you are, especially, you know, as a female presenting person out there who has lived experience. And I can only imagine how often you must get dismissed or eye rolled by people who don't want to do their fucking homework. As I say, I'll just keep beating that drum. And I'm just... I'm honored to have the chance to sit down with you. I have no doubt that this conversation is going to have ripple effects. And um, I'd love to end by just you giving the listeners maybe what you're working on, um, where they can find you on socials. And I will link everyone to Jay's Twitter and, and stuff in the, in the description, but what um, what's next for, for Dr. Jay Watts? Um, I mean, join us and I really want to say us because activism is you know we it's in our conversations and it's our groups that 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 we get things done please check out hashtag trauma not pd and hashtag autism not pd um and um I might give it a couple of a, a more links to you of really exciting things to look at. I would love that. But, 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 but yeah, um, I'm doing um, quite a lot of writing at the moment about, about autism and misdiagnosis and BPD. So um, that will just on a personal level, that will be coming out in terms of my contribution to try and get clinicians and diagnosticians, especially just pausing that automatic assumption that 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 is hurting people um and um yeah uh, uh, and i don't really i i i i'm going all like british i don't really want to amplify i know i know um, you're not wanting to get big up yourself you know what i mean (laughs) i get it but i would love if I will coordinate with you uh, offline so that if there are any helpful articles, my reader, my listeners are big yeah. readers. And so if there's any helpful resources or articles, I'd love to link those in the episode description. So for those of you listening, don't forget to check out the episode description because I'll include everything that Jay sends through to me. And I highly recommend just 
following her on Twitter because it's a really good way. I love the things that you retweet. And for me, I've been able to learn a lot because sometimes when you retweet, you're amplifying lived lived experience voices and I click into their profile and then I go down that rabbit hole of reading their experience. So if you're interested in all of this, I highly recommend following Jay on on Twitter because she's constantly sharing really, really um, moving things. Thank you, Jay. And I'm hoping that we can have you back on in the future. It would be a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you and it's been very uplifting. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jay as much as I did. I'm so excited to dive into so many of the topics that she shared that were pretty eye-opening for me and I have no doubt that many of you listening this has given you a lot of food for thought as well which is exactly why I do what I do let's open our minds open our hearts and try to aim for a more humanistic and critical view of these concepts nuanced discussion that's what we need right now we need to move away from these dogmatic polarized views that place people in tiny boxes and not be afraid to throw things away that aren't working anymore or improve things that might have things that are working but pieces that aren't anymore and I really believe that there is a deep need for dismantling and it is my hope that podcasts like mine work like Jay's is going to contribute to a new dawn of the way that we look at neurodiversity mental health and our consciousness and psyche in general but i'm very optimistic because of people like jay out there doing the work as i mentioned at the beginning of the episode jay kindly emailed me with a wealth of resources that i'm going to include in the episode description and i mentioned it already but i recommend that you follow her on twitter if you're interested in her views and her work she's constantly amplifying the voices of other psychiatric survivors and others that are in the activism spaces that she is in i myself am absolutely going to be looking more deeply into hashtag trauma not pd and hashtag autism not pd and i also plan on doing further episodes on masking behaviors and also the phenomenon of misdiagnosis with trauma and autism this is something that i'm very excited to dive more deeply in with my research and my own personal journey as well as many of you know who are frequent listeners, I usually finish each episode with a bit of a preview of my second private podcast called My Stupid Walk for My Stupid Mental Health. But since this has been a longer episode this week, I'm going to not do that this week. But if you would like to join my Patreon community where I post my second private podcast, you can join the rest of us, a community of more than 400 other people and growing who join me on my stupid walk for my stupid mental health every week. And on this week's episode, I'm reflecting on some personal things that came up for me in my talk with Jay. And I also read some emails and respond to a few voicemails from other premium submarines which is what I call my premium subscribers who get this second podcast. So if that sounds like something that you'd like, you can go ahead and click the link in the episode description. It's very clear how you can join or you can do that by visiting my 
website, backfromtheborderline.com. Don't forget to share this episode with someone you love if you think it could help them. Follow the podcast if you're a new listener and you haven't done that yet. That means you'll get notifications every time I drop a new episode each Tuesday. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at backfromtheborderline. I'm constantly sharing rants, memes. We're chatting in the comments. It's really fun. So get involved there too. I look forward to joining our Back From The Borderline family in one of those many different ways. Thank you for being here with me today. And until next time, I love you so much. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday for another episode of Back From The Borderline. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back From The Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.